Amen. He is ours forevermore. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we are continuing just a three-Sunday break from Genesis as we look at this topic of the church, and more specifically, the church unified and how God works through that in our midst. And I am going to read uh, verses uh, 1 through uh, 16 for context, but we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning, having looked at verses 1 through 6 last week. This is God's word. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure and stature and fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the reading of God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Do you pray with me as we approach the Lord? Lord Jesus, we come before you thanking you that the truths of this last song, that our hope is secure, that we have this blessed hope uh, of you, and you are ours now and forevermore. Lord, we thank you that we can sing to you, that we can gather together on this Lord's day to honor you and give you what you deserve. And Lord, we truly find our identity in you this morning as our passage claims we have that unity because you, O oh Lord, are unified. You are one. Father, we ask that you would be with us, that you would teach us, that you would uh, explain this to us and help us to put it into practice. 
Lord, we don't just pray for ourselves, but other churches. We lift up Pleasant Hill Church here in the county out in Creston, that you would be with them, that you would make yourself known to them, and that you would encourage them in their community, that they would spread your gospel, and that you would show yourself strong on their behalf. Father, for other churches, our sister churches in the Reformed Baptist Network, we lift up the Reformed Baptist Church of Lafayette, New New Jersey, that you'd be with them as well. We thank you that uh, our team is able to gather uh, together with the other sister churches in the network in Indiana this next week. We pray that you would um, just make that time sweet as uh, they network together and encourage one another. Lord, we pray for the persecuted church. Lord, you tell us to pray for those who are persecuted as if we are in chains with them. And so we don't um, just uh, revel in our own freedoms in this land, but Lord, we ask that you would help us to identify with our persecuted brothers around the world. This morning, Lord, we lift up uh, the church in Libya, that you would be with believers there, that you would strengthen them uh, amidst persecution, and Lord, that you would encourage them, that you would make yourself known to them, that you would help them to see that uh, blessed are the persecuted, that Lord, one day you will make these things right, and that Lord, you are advancing your redemptive uh, processes and uh, procedures through Uh, the persecution of your church. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us strength um, to pray for our brethren and for them to persevere. Father, we know that there are billions around the world that have never heard your word. And in uh, a global age of technology, it's absolutely amazing that many have still never heard. And so we lift up unreached people groups and we ask that you would take the gospel to them. Lord, let it not reach our hearts and not move us that uh, there are people do, that, that cannot even access the gospel uh, even in a day's travel uh, on this earth. And so, Lord, we lift um, those people to you. Uh, Lord, specifically this morning, we pray for the Anka people of Nigeria, that, Lord, um, as they are uh, enwrapped in um, Islam and in other animistic religions, we ask that you would free them by the power of your gospel, that you would send missionaries to them. We know that your gospel has come to that country, but uh, has not penetrated um, in a powerful way into this people group. And so we ask for your uh, grace there, that you would provide strength to the missionaries uh, that are taking um, this great gospel to them. And so we ask that you would do that. Father, we're not... um, Uh, closed-hearted to the trials and tribulations of our world. We specifically lift up um, Afghan and Ukrainian refugees as they continue to settle um, from the regional wars that they have experienced, that, Lord, you would provide for them. Lord, that you are near the brokenhearted and those who have been uprooted from their lives, that they would uh, not just be physically comforted, but, Lord, that your church would arise and minister to these, that they might find hope. Father, we pray uh, in other places like uh, Myanmar and in Burma, Lord, the atrocities that are happening with genocide and in China and other places that, God, you would give strength to your people to rise up, that, Lord, you would show mercy uh, to those who are um, under such um, uh, horrible war crimes. Father, for Pakistan and the flooding going on there, the many that have drowned um, because of the flooding there and those who have lost everything, that, Lord, you would provide for them, that you would raise the church up to serve and to preach your gospel. Father, here at home, we pray that you would continue to give um, our leaders wisdom. Lord, you tell us to pray for our leaders. 
regardless of our feelings or opinions about them. Lord, you are calling us to, to lift them up in prayer. And so we pray for our president and our administration all the way down to state leaders with all the uh, many things going on and trials in our country that, Lord, you would help uh, these to look to you. Father, that you would humble them in the midst of the chaos to help them to see you, that you are a king that sits above all principalities and powers, and they will give account one day, and they will bow the knee. And I pray that you would do that and cause many to, to turn to you. Father, for uh, also those families in Kentucky that are still um, recovering from the flooding, uh, as well as the fires in California, that you would uh, minister to those that have lost much, that they would see that uh, there's a greater loss if they don't turn to you. Father, for uh, the Ukraine war, we pray uh, that you would give sustenance to both uh, Russian families and Ukrainian families, Lord, as they suffer loss on both sides. We know that your people dwell there, and they are a part of a greater citizenship in heaven, and so they are brothers and sisters, and I pray that you would uh, give them strength, Lord, the church there. Father, that you would uh, work in this war to accomplish your purposes and your ends, despite the uh, chaos that seemingly ensues from what the atrocities that are going on. And so we ask for your help there and that you would work. Father, to the sick, we lift up them this morning uh, that are not able to be with us, that you would continue to be with them. Father, we pray for Kimberly Finney and her father, Lord, as she's with him in his last moments, that God, you would provide mercy and strength and grace. Lord, we thank you that he knows you. And Lord, we pray that you would give these last days just sweet moments. Father, I pray that you would take him uh, on to be with you. Uh, Lord, that you would show your mercy there. We thank you for his life and uh, how many that have rallied around him this week, Lord, to show their thanksgiving uh, for his life. We thank you for saving him. We thank you for ushering him to this point. And Lord, we know you'll safely bring him home. Father, for Kimberly and Scott, that you would be with them as they um, are working through these stresses and these pains, that Lord, you would provide your comfort in a way that only you can. Father, for Mary Houck, we continue to lift up Sarah's mother as well, that you would just be with her and give her strength and um, her husband as well, Lord, in, in these uh, hard times, that, Lord, you would provide grace for the family. And for Ryan Marlowe, we continue to lift him up as he battles um, for his um, just survival, Lord, and we ask for wisdom there in all the ups and downs of this story, um, that, God, you would... Um, provide for our brother. Lord, we don't know what your plan is in all of this, but Lord, that you would comfort Megan and the children in this great uh, hour of trial. And Lord, that you would help them to look to you, that you would comfort them no matter the outcome, that we know that Ryan is in your hands and we entrust him to you. We thank you for his uh, ministry up to this point, uh, the pastor that he is. Um, but Lord, would you show grace uh, regardless of what happens, Lord, that you would get glory. And Lord, that you would um, heal him if that would be your will. If not, Lord, that you would show grace in a timely way to, to take him home to be with you. And so just give wisdom uh, to uh, the family and to the doctors. Father, uh, for those that are grieving, that you would comfort them and that, Lord, you would uh, provide uh, much strength. Lord, I lift up my own father-in-law to you, Lord, as he goes in for surgery this Tuesday, that you would um, help the doctors to have wisdom 
and Lord, that uh, this cavernoma would be able to be dealt with, and Lord, that he would be able to heal quickly. So we lift him to you as well. Father, so much is on our hearts as we gather to worship this morning. We pray that you would help us to trust you uh, with all these things, that we might be of a clear mind to consider your word to us this morning. And so, Father, we do pray that as we continue to worship, not just in song, but now in word, later in giving and in singing, that, Lord, you would be glorified and that you wouldn't be disglorified in the proclamation of your word, but obedience to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I'm glad to uh, be with you this morning. Uh, last week, we uh, departed on a short journey, a um, uh, little side note from, uh, from the book of Genesis, looking at Ephesians chapter 4 and considering this theme of unity. You might think, well, why speak about unity and why take a break to do that? Well, there's multiple reasons for that. And that is that there are times where when we have a long series of um, study in one book, it's good to take a break. So that's a practical way. But secondly, in these days, as the Lord is embarking us in church planting and um, feeling the uh, strains of growth, but also of the challenge missionally, that it's important for us to reorient ourselves to God and the, what he is doing in the process of uh, growing his church and equipping his church. And then thirdly, it's important for us to consider what God is uh, doing overall in his universal church and how we fit into that bigger piece of what God is doing in our day. And so last week we looked at the large view of what God is doing in his church, the unity of the body of Christ. We considered what this call, these practical calls towards walking in a manner that's worthy of the calling which we have received, and we unpacked that last week. We also spoke of the peace that God is bringing forth in the unity of his church. And then we also finally looked at what God is doing in revealing himself as the one God as we see in the Shema and other places in the Old Testament, that God reveals himself as one, but also um, shows that in three um, ways, in three persons, rather, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we looked at all of those in verses 4, 5, and 6, that there's a unity that we are called to because God is unified. And so now that he's looked at this big picture, we come back to this uh, in verse 7, and we see here that he's taking us off the global picture of unity and bringing it down to the individual level. So I want to look at this passage in, in three points. First of all, in verse 7, we'll look at the plurality of the recipients, that each one of us has received grace. God has given Paul a grace that we have seen in chapters 1 through 3. Secondly, we want to look at what God's plan is in doing this. Why is he giving these grace gifts? What is he doing in the body of Christ? And what is our part to play in his ultimate redemptive plan? And then lastly, we'll look at the primary leaders that God gifts the church. And we will talk about that briefly about purpose, but we'll pick up on that next week. So when we think about unity, we made this connection last week between unity and truth. Uh, people can unify around all kinds of things, can't they? 
They can unify around a cause. They can unify around a political leader. They can unify around some idea. They can unify around a philosophy. We can unify as a country. Uh, we can unify around other things. But Paul isn't just speaking about unity for unity's sake. Unity is only true unity when it's brought together and married with truth. And I gave you that quote from R.C. Sproul last week that speaks about uh, that, that if we have unity around something without truth, it is true treason before the Almighty. C.S. Lewis says, to seek unity, you will find neither unity nor truth. To seek the light of truth, you will find unity and truth. And so we don't need to forget here the, the, the commonality between truth and unity. And Paul has brought that to us here, that we have no unity unless we're dwelling on the truth of the gospel. And we talked about this, what this calling is. We reviewed in chapters one through three that God has given all these precious inheritances to us in Christ, that he has uh, was slain for us before the foundation of the world, that he has predestined us as sons of adoption, and all these truths that we look at in chapters one through three, and then we come into chapter two, and we know that God, who has been rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. And so if he's brought us up out of the dead, and he's given us purpose for his redemptive work, the larger picture here that Paul gets into is what part do we play in not only his larger workings of his church, but even in local churches, what is he doing in and through his people? That each of us, as it says in verse 7, have been given these graces. So let's look at that first, that we see not just the unity of God, but we also see the plurality of the recipients here in verse 7. Let's read that again in verse 7. But, notice this transition here. He has explained what we looked at in verses 1 through 6. And whenever you see the word but, this connected term, he's um, contrasting what has already been taught. So he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Think about that for a moment. Everything that you've ever give, been given is ultimately an outpouring of what God has, has given you. Um, that, that God is giving the gifts. We know in chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, I count all the things that were a part of my uh, you know, upbringing, all these education, all that he had had, he counted as loss that he could gain Christ. And here again to the Ephesians, he says, this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, ultimately, that God gives us faith. We see some great theology here, that coming to Christ is not a mere decision, it's a work of God, it's a miracle of God. And that's why often you hear us as pastors saying, there is no boring testimony. All of us are recipients of Christ's grace. He has accomplished these things for us and in us. And so he saved us by grace through faith 
It's not a result of our own doing that we could boast. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, he reminds us that we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And notice, it's not just some idea of good works. Notice it says here that God prepared, excuse me, would God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow. God has prepared his church in this generation to walk according and walk worthy as we see in chapters uh, four, one through six, in a worthy way of our calling. But it's not just us corporately. It's also us individually. So notice what he says here. But grace was given to each one of us. Now, Paul recognizes this. If you realize in chapter one and then in chapter three, he also repeats this about himself, that God gave him this grace. Just for an example there, without um, going too off track here, in chapter three, verse seven, Paul says this, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's, notice, grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So we will connect more of this in the days ahead, but it's important for us to see that the reason God gives gifts is ultimately for his glory. But the gift of his grace comes down in different ways upon each of us, and we'll flesh that out more next week as we look at how um, we are to be equipped for the ministry. And so Paul is realizing that this gospel, this minister that he has been given, this ministry that he's been given, is a gift of God's grace. And so he continues this idea that it's also to each one of us. I think that's an important note, that sometimes we feel that we are in a mass of people, maybe even a mass of gifted people, that we don't feel like we have any part to play in God's redeeming work. And I want to tell you right now from God's word that to believe such a thing is not to believe the scriptures. We all have a part to play. And yes, they're different, but they are all unified in heading the same direction. So grace was given to each one of us. But notice that it's not just gifts for gifts sake, and that's where Paul's argument goes here, but it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. So you think about that. Why is it that God gave us gifts in Christ? Often we, our minds stop at salvation, don't they? they, they we, we think about the great redemption that he's uh, given us, that he has forgiven us of our trespasses and sins, and, and we, we think that that's, that's where it ends. But we know from chapter one that he has done more than we could ever ask or imagine as he ends chapter three with that prayer that God has given us a great inheritance, a great reason for uh, rejoicing. And so this idea of his grace gifts, he gives these to us for the purpose of serving, serving the king, serving his uh, majesty. And so notice that he's doing this according to these individual ways. And so we can understand that our part plays in a larger whole of the unity of Christ's church, let alone on the local level. And so Paul continues this very thought as he quotes Psalm 68 here. Notice he says, therefore. Well, you always pay attention there to therefore. 
In other words, he's taught what he has in verses one through six about the unity of the Godhead, unity that we should be following in these practical ways. And But grace was given also to each of us, not just the whole. And then he says, therefore, it says, and he's quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this sometimes can be a very hard uh, passage to interpret as Psalm 68 verse 18 is in the context of a larger psalm that is proclaiming really the Messiah's kingship, that he is accomplishing these things. And so when it says he ascended on high and led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men, really there's three ideas that come from this that most scholars have wrestled with. And is it that that he ascended on high, that is his ascension into heaven, and he led a host of captives, this is his, his redeeming work, and he's giving gifts to men? Or is it that he has died and rose again and therefore has purchased these things? Or is it speaking of the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit, that the one who has ascended has also freed and given gifts, spiritual gifts, to men? Well, I think the answer comes as we really think about the larger context of Psalm 68. If you'd turn there real quick, Psalm 68, and we'll look at its greater context. We don't have time to look at the whole psalm, but I think it's important for us to see when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, uh, there's some peculiar uh, things about this quote that Paul makes, and people have made accusations in that way. When we consider um, all that uh, is being taught in this, we don't have time to read the whole uh, context of this, the whole psalm, but um, it is a psalm of David, and it is speaking of the mighty power of the one who will shatter his enemies. And uh, so go up to, um, go down to uh, verse 11, and that will give us a greater context here of this psalm. It says, The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil, though you men lie among the sheepfolds. The wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions and shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, a many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, and here's the quote from Ephesians, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears up. God is our salvation. Selah. And it goes on. But in the context here, notice that it is speaking really of the connection between Sinai and Mount Zion. 
that ultimately there's a connection of what the Messiah would do in fulfilling the law and bringing praise to God at Zion. And so as Paul is quoting this, let's just look at a few peculiarities here. I think it's important because they jump off the page, at least to me, that Paul seems to actually be misquoting this verse, not necessarily in its context, but particular words. Notice here in the context of Psalm 68, it says, you ascended on high, leading a a host of captives to your train and receiving gifts among men. If you look in the Ephesians quote, it's giving gifts to men, even among the rebellious that the Lord may dwell there. So a few notes here. First of all, there's accusations that Paul has uh, is, is taking liberty to change Scripture. Um, others have said that Paul is misrepresenting the text. Others have said, well, maybe he's just uh, using this to, for, for his uh, point to describe these things. But I also want us to le- see here that the larger picture of the book of Psalms here in, in chapter 68 tells us really what Paul is doing. In other words, it gives us this hint. Again, as we have taught so many times before, when we're trying to understand a difficult passage and to interpret it, we compare it with other scriptures, right? And to passages that aren't so difficult. And so we know that God has done these things in the gospel that he has ascended. So turn back now to Ephesians 4 and notice that he has some parentheses here that he is seeking to explain this and why he goes to this passage. Because he says, therefore it says. So what was Paul's original or prior thought? It was that grace was given to each one of us. So Paul is following this train of thought that things are given to us. Grace is given to us in Christ. And how does this connect now to what Christ has done in the past? Well, notice he's ascended on high. This speaks of none other than his ascension, that he is at the right hand of the throne of glory, a part of the gospel that sometimes we leave out. We know that he died, that he paid for our sins, that he was buried according to the scriptures. He rose again and we rejoice in that, but we don't end there. He ascended. There is a man in heaven that is sitting at God's right hand, that he is the perfect prince of peace. He is our advocate. He is our God. And he is there, and he is working these things. But his ministry didn't even end there. Remember, he told his disciples, I will not leave you orphans. In fact, when he commanded his disciples to go, he said, I will be with you always. Again, the principle that whatever God commands, he provides for. If he commands for us to go, he will give us the means to do so. If he tells us to preach the gospel, he will be in us to proclaim it through us. If he tells us to honor our father and mother, he gives us the ability to do so. If he calls us to forgive very hard things, he gives us the ability to do so because of what he has done in and through us. And so he is the one who has ascended on high. What is this host of captives? he's speaking of his redemptive work. He's speaking, as Paul says, of us. God didn't merely deliver us from sin and sorrow and Satan to just sit, as one preacher said. He called us to serve. 
He called us to use these gifts that he is working in and through his church to redeem and to take his gospel to places that it's never gone. Have you ever considered that work of the church? He could send angels, but we know that he has desired to use his redeemed people to take this message to the nations, to take it to those who have never heard. You heard the gospel through another human voice. It's a proclamation of the gospel. This is the way that God designed his word to be proclaimed. Not just talked about, not just examined. Our theology is to be on fire because it is to be proclaimed. It is a powerful, it is mighty to save. It cuts to the joint and marrow as the word is preached. That The word has the ability to do this. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so Paul knows this very truth that these, this one that has ascended on high has delivered these captives. And these, in the context of uh, Psalm 68, of his kingship, that gifts flow to a king, right? As he ascends to his throne, or as you ascend to the throne, that you're giving these gifts. And Christ is worthy of these gifts. We know, for instance, in the book of Revelation that we will cast our crowns one day before the Lord. But notice here the, the, the crazy change here of what Christ has done. Not only is he receiving the glory, but he turns that back and gives more gifts. He turns this around. And so Paul is saying from chapter 68 of the book of Psalms, saying that this fulfillment here is what Christ is doing in sending his spirit and giving us gifts. Perhaps the most neglected doctrine in our day is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That we push on one side against uh, charismania that can be very unhelpful and dangerous in the way that they falsely teach about the Holy Spirit. And then on the other side, we can just have this calculated uh, study of the Holy Spirit that is under a microscope and it has no power because it is really not connected with the truth of the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't a thing. He's not an idea. It's a person of God, the third person of the Trinity that was promised to us, that was gifted to us. As this book says, he sealed us. And so this ministry of the Spirit in our lives is a grace that has been given to us, but it comes with greater gifts. It's important to note as a side note here that gifts, and we'll return to this uh, next week as well, that there are certain gifts that God has given at different periods of church history for his purposes. And so there's there's a difference there that some have ceased and others have uh, started in this way. You can look at 1 Corinthians and other places, for instance, of how God gifted his church, not only in the early days of the church, but even today that we need to see here in the larger context of Ephesians, let alone the New Testament. So Paul now seeks to interpret this in verse 9. Notice that this is the plan now. We've looked at the plurality of the recipients, which is all of us, and now let's look at what God's plan is in doing this. Notice it says in verse 9, in saying he ascended, so he's commentating here now on Psalm 68, 18, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? So 
Paul maybe seems to be unhelpful to us here because we're thinking we have it right to understand it in the sense of its kingly ascent, that he is on the throne. But notice here, this Greek word can refer both to men and women. He's not just speaking that, um, that these are just men, but that he is giving gifts to men and women, his good uh, people. And so in saying this, that he ascended, what does it mean there? Well, he is the one who came to earth. It's speaking of his incarnation. That he is the one who humbled himself, Philippians 2, that became a man, that he served us in this way, but he's also the one who is obedient to the Father and then ascended into heaven once again. So he comments on this here in verse 10. He who descended, that is the one who came to earth, is the one who also ascended far above all the heights, or all the heavens rather, that he might fill all things. Paul picks up on this with the Colossians in chapter one, and he says that Christ is preeminent above all things. There's nothing more important than Christ. He is preeminent above all things. Through him, the world was made, and by him, all things hold together or exist. So why is Paul taking us to these glorious truths? Well, they're all related. You see here, folks, as we look at this great passage, truth and unity are married in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we seek to launch ministries or we seek to continue ministry or we seek to do something new without being cemented in the truth that we are disunified according to our relationship with God and his church. God is working these things together and he wants us to center on the gospel and who he is. It's Jesus Christ who holds all things together and Christ alone, he indeed is the one who receives all the glory. And so what is this great plan? To redeem a people for himself. Consider this train of thought in just the book of Ephesians. Turn over to chapter one, verse 10. And these will be easy to remember because they all start with, uh, or, or start with verse 10 of each chapter. So here in chapter one, verse 10, it says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Again, Christ is the focus. All things are united ultimately in him, the truth, and things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, all that God is seeking to accomplish, this plan. Secondly, look at chapter two, verse 10, which we already quoted earlier. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So notice the plan is to unite things all under Christ. Chapter two here, that God is doing this through his church. He's preparing his church in each generation to accomplish what he's prepared for them. Now jump over to chapter three, verse 10, which we looked at briefly last week. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you hear that? How is God making himself known in our day, let alone any time in church history? It's through his people. This is one of the reasons that Satan battles against the bride of Christ. 
because she is reflecting and glorifying and making much of Christ. And we are treasuring Christ and we are seeking to serve him. We are his redeemed people and we are seeking to walk through this life as we are travelers to the heavenly city and yet he battles against this. But notice in chapter three, verse 10, that he would make known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places who he is and what he's doing. Verse 11 attaches to that. This, this was according to the eternal, notice, purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, access with confidence through our faith in him. And so this is God's plan. Now in chapter four, verse 10 here, we come to this, that again, this same thing is that his plan is that the one who ascended also descended to fill all things. God's ultimate plan in his church is to make much of himself, but he's redeeming a people for himself, and he does this through the church. And so this is important to notice. Why? Well, our theology of the church is important. Many times we have a bad attitude about the church. We think merely of its working parts rather than the whole. We think, oh, there's so much wrong with the church today. We're uh, concerned about doctrine. We're concerned about how we look at all these individual things. And we begin to examine the church and, and seek to pull it apart as if uh, we were um, uh, nitpicking someone else's bride. Now, there's a lot of things that I can forgive, but if one of you were to start nitpicking my bride, um, I would have a problem. Those would be fighting words, wouldn't they? And how much more do we do this to the body of Christ? We don't love her as we ought to love her. Christ gave his life for her, and we don't look at Christ's bride the way that we ought to look. And yes, it is a unified group of people made up of individual parts that have been given grace, but why is it that we sometimes forget to give that grace to each other? Which is the content of the application of these great truths in chapter 1 through 3 which is why he tells us in chapter four, verse two, and verse one, to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. If we have received great mercy, why is it that it's so hard to show that mercy? You've been given such humility by example in Christ. Why is it that you are not humble? We've been given such gentleness in Christ. Why are we not gentle? God has been patient with us. Why is it that we don't extend that patience to one another? God has bared with us so often. How is it that we, we cannot bear with one another in love? He has worked constantly in every generation to maintain the unity uh, in the bond of peace. Why is it that we work against that? And so this unity is in the diversity of his people and living this out. This is his plan. So in verse 10, he says, he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. It's about him, it's for him, it's through him, it's unto him that he deserves the praise. And so we see not only the plurality of recipients, we have not only seen God's plan in working all things together for his good, and that we all play a part in this. But finally, we see that he gives specific gifts to primary leaders. It's our last point this morning we'll hit on more of these gifts and how God has, has um, uh, equipped the whole body. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on that next week. That's why I'm not going to verse 11, uh, excuse me, verse 12 this morning. But in verse 11, 
he says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. God gifts his people. Often when people have joined this church, you've heard us say that, that God gifts his church and those gifts are not disembodied gifts. Gifts are people. And so here, it's not speaking in, the, in verse 11 of office. It's more of function. He wants to get us the global picture of what God is doing and why he gave particular gifts. But it doesn't leave out that he didn't give other gifts. He did. So if you don't find yourself in this list, that's okay. That's not the point. But God has given us all gifts. We know that the body functions when we're all together. There's no way that Pastor Kaysen, Pastor Quinn, and myself could function if we tried to do all these things ourselves. We need those to uh, be involved in the work of the ministry, and we'll talk more about this next week. If we didn't have Sunday school teachers and deacons serving behind the scenes and our blessed sound team uh, doing recordings and online postings, if we didn't have musicians that were leading and Simon uh, to, to lead us in drums to keep a beat and timing and to have all these uh, instrumentalists and singers to help guide us and help us sing to one another and unto the Lord, let alone all of you that serve in Sunday school and changing diapers in the nursery so that you can listen to God's word and focus on him, to those who are planning and, and giving their time and energies to this church in all kinds of different ways. It's a multitude, and we'll revisit that next week. But here he focuses mostly on the primary leaders, and they have a function that we'll talk to is to equip. So notice, let's pull these apart. Let's take a moment here. Who is it that he gave? He gave the apostles. Well, how do we define apostle? Uh, there's many in Christendom today that say the apostles still exist, but not according to definition. Apostles are those who are eyewitnesses of Christ and were called out by him to serve in that office. Paul said that as we just looked at in chapter 3, verse 7, that he was called to this grace which was apostleship. In fact, he starts many of his letters in this way. It says, God called me to this office. He didn't call everyone, but he does call some, and he called these 12 to be apostles. So they were eyewitnesses. They heard Christ's teachings firsthand, and they um, followed him. Many say, well, what about Paul? Paul, didn't, Paul wasn't around. Jesus was already dead when, before he came to know the Lord. Well, don't forget that when Christ appeared to him on that Damascus road. That was very much in person. And he did see Christ in all of his glory. And he was blinded. And so these are apostles. They laid the foundation of the teaching. The Apostles' Creed, that's where we get that. It, mainly when they devoted themselves, it says in Acts 2, to the unity of, of the church was uh, bound together with the apostles' teaching. When we study the New Testament, we're mainly studying the apostles' teaching. And so, again, remember that the authors, there's always two authors of Scripture. There's the Holy Spirit, of course, that's inspired it, but the human author that's written it down and that God used to write it down. And through their personalities and through their giftings, God did this. Nonetheless, we're looking at this from the pen of the Apostle Paul, but the Holy Spirit inspired it. Then, secondly, prophets. Now, we might just think that prophets are just speaking of Old Testament here, but when we think about prophets, we're thinking about foretelling the future. But there's also a second purpose of prophets, not just foretelling the future, but foretelling God's word. 
forth-telling. So foretelling and forth-telling God's word. And so while the ministry of the prophet ends with, the, uh, with John the Baptist as he ushers Christ in as uh, the one to whom we must look to, as, uh, as John said that he's not worthy to unstrap his sandal, we also know that prophecy does exist in the New Testament. We see that in multiple places in the book of Acts. And so while prophecy in one sense has ceased, prophecy in another way is still a part of Christ's church. It is a foretelling of God's word. It is a, a preaching gift, if you will. Now, notice that he says shepherds and teachers, but it is a foretelling of God's word. It is going forth that we are prophetic in the things that we say. Every time we proclaim that Christ is returning, repent, therefore, that is prophecy. We are saying Christ is coming and he will come just as the Old Testament prophet said he would come the first time. But it's not the same prophetic gift that we see again in the Old Testament where God gives new revelation and that needs to be made clear. The revelation we've been given is right before us in God's word. So a prophet that claims to be a prophet better be preaching and preaching God's word is the uh, showing of this gift. Then he moves to evangelists, literally a proclaimer, an evangel, one who proclaims the good news. I think what's meant here is really ministry amongst missionaries, that those who are taking the gospel to foreign places or to those who have never heard are evangelizing. They're proclaimers of this great gospel, and God specifically gifted the church with such people. It doesn't mean that we are not called to share our faith. It doesn't mean that we are not called to evangelize, but it does show us here that there are particular people with gifts and abilities, unlike those sitting next to us, that are able to make known God's word and go to places and to evangelize and make his word known, particularly the gospel known. We are sharing the good news. And then finally, the shepherds and teachers. It's important to note here, again, as I said earlier, that this isn't speaking of office. That's why we don't have a office of evangelist or an office of an apostle or prophet. The New Testament tells us that Paul told um, Timothy to put um, qualified men in the office of elder and deacon. And these elders were called to a specific ministry. If you were to go to 1 Timothy 3, which we're, we don't have time to because of the lateness of the hour, but God calls them to mainly do shepherding and teaching and to the ministry of prayer. I like to put it in three Ps for our team. We're called to prayer. We're called to be men of prayer and leading in prayer. We're called to pastor, to shepherd our people, and we're called to proclaim. We're called to preach God's word, and, a, and a, uh, an elder is called to these things. But here, specifically, shepherd and teacher is used uh, as a unit that God is um, trying to get us to see that the reason that this um, gift is given is a particular shepherding gift and teaching gift. In other words, God shepherds his people through the teaching of the word. He shepherds his people through the proclamation of his word. So if church has ever become boring to you, let me wake you up by saying God has gifted us in the church to encourage one another, but specifically those who are given to these primary leadership positions, it's to equip you. 
And if the preaching is not equipping you for action, then the preacher or the teachers are failing in their job. We, as pastors, long to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which we'll look at next week. That the whole purpose of unity is to glorify God, but through these many parts, and that the church is being equipped, that we are being discipled under the preaching of God's word. And so as Paul walks through these, He's reminding the Ephesians of all these great gifts that they've been given, that they too are participants in this body, the church, and these that have been given these gifts primarily as leaders are to ultimately equip us for God's glory and his work. So, so what? We've just spent, what, 40 minutes looking at these truths? So what? What is God calling us to look at? First of all, I want to remind us of this unity. And this helps for those who sometimes uh, get um, discouraged or uh, distraught over the current state of the larger evangelical church, which there's reason to be. Just remember, God's not done yet. The church is going to continue its victorious pursuit till Christ returns. Leaders will come, leaders will fall, but God remains the same. And we must have a healthy, mature, and positive view of what God is doing in his church today, regardless of the things that would seek to distract us. That should affect our attitude about God's local church. Even from the Reformed community, that we tend to to, uh, marginalize those who are even Arminian. But the, the beauty of that is that they're still proclaiming the gospel. It's often been said it's better to be an Armenian and proclaim the gospel than to sit on our Calvinism and and not share our faith. And so these truths are too great to not proclaim. They're too great to not take to the nations. And so the first act of application for our hearts is to improve and think about our attitude about God's workings in his church. Do we love her? Do we appreciate her? Do we compliment her? Do we look to find the grace of what God is doing in a given congregation, even with all of its mess? Our own confession of faith says that every body of believers is full of truth and error. We're all under construction, and so we can trust him in this. Secondly, God has given you a gift by his grace. And while I'm speaking to the whole here, and many of you understand and know and walk in those gifts uh, obediently to the Lord, perhaps there's some of you that don't know what gift you've been given. That I encourage you to seek that out because the part you play in the body of Christ is vitally important. There's something that we are missing because you aren't living that out, because you're not involved, because you're not doing what God has gifted you to do. And I don't have anything in mind there. I'm just saying that if that's you, seek that out and ask the Lord to how you ought to serve him. I, I, I just get so full of joy to see our young people serving. Like, it, it's just awesome that, uh, that, that our young people are just jumping right in there. They're looking to serve the Lord in these ways. And we obviously have given them example to do so. Find your gift and use it to God's glory. And then lastly, when we consider what God has done in his church in giving us these primary leaders, 
Let us learn to trust the Lord in the fact that he's given us human leaders. That's difficult, isn't it? In a world that doesn't respect authority anymore, from police officers to presidents to pastors, we are mere men. We are sinful men. We are failures at times. But God has called primary leaders to a ministry, a ministry of leading, and a ministry, as we'll look at next week, to equipping you, the body of Christ. And the Lord provides. And by his grace, he has given us three pastors. He's given us five deacons. And God has blessed us in this way. And we need to be challenged in this way when we think about what God is doing in our world. Are we learning to trust God in how he has gifted his body? Or do we at times murmur and complain? And you may even have a point. It's We ought to, as pastors, be able to receive criticism. Most of the time, criticism has at least a fraction of truth in it. And we need to learn to have tough skin and to listen to you, the body of Christ. But the body is called to hold us accountable to these things. And we ought to listen and we ought to consider it and seek to repent when we are at odds. In fact, the New Testament even tells us that there's a great restraint that is given uh, to many to not bring these things. And this is one of the reasons that Paul says, uh, if there's an accusation against an elder, let there be two or three. In other words, there's an establishment of something that needs to come that, that a pastor could be restored. And so what is your attitude about leadership? Is it flawed? Is it untrusting? Is it maybe too trusting? How is it that God has called you to respond to his uh, gifted uh, people in this way? But don't forget, that's not just the present tense in the sense of your shepherds and teachers because we're not the focus, Christ is. But also remember to pray for those that are evangelists, those who are proclaiming the word in other places. Um, are you standing on the apostles' teaching? Are you taking advantage of studying God's word and applying it to your life? And so what is all this about? Well, as we mentioned in those three points of application, God is calling us to an obedience, a radical obedience to see ourselves a part of a greater whole, to give ourselves completely to his um, plan and ultimately to bring praise to the King of Kings who is worthy, the one who has given us these gifts. And so we're called to this, church. We're called to live this out to his glory and um, for our good. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to a time of response, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its work in our hearts. We thank you for these grace gifts that you have given the body, your body, the church. We thank you for showing us this great plan as Paul took us to Psalm 68. And now, Lord, as we seek to digest this and put it into practice, would you call us to not just the unity, but the diversity of our gifts? to not compare ourselves with the person next to us because we've each been given a different gift. 
and we're called to use those gifts to your glory. Some more in front than others, but nonetheless, the purpose is the same, to equip your body, to glorify you, and to make much of you. And so, Father, as we um, come to this time of response, would you help us to run inventory on our own lives about our attitudes about your bride, our attitudes about how we're serving you uh, from this great grace that you've given us, and then ultimately what you would have for us to do in the days ahead, that you might be glorified more in and through us, and that we would lay that down as your spirit leads. And we ask this in your holy name. Amen.